Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me talking into a microphone. This is almost three-dimensional. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy. I am uh, in Los Angeles where it is currently uh, dawn. It's very early here, uh, and it's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Mitchell S. Jackson is my guest. His debut novel, The Residue Years, is just out from Bloomsbury, it's great to have him here on the program. We're going to get to talking in just a moment. But uh, first, uh, I have a little news that might be of interest. Uh, I took Adderall for the first time yesterday. I took an Adderall pill. Uh, a tablet, if you will. It was a planned event. I actually had it scheduled in my calendar. <laughs> because uh, at my age, you have to schedule these things. And my interest was pretty specific, almost to the point of being academic. I wanted to eat Adderall and then try to write, which uh, is something I'd never done before. And a friend of mine uh, was kind enough to give me uh, one of her pills, and I've had it here in my desk drawer for about three weeks, you know, waiting to find the appropriate time to ingest it. And, uh, you know, for anyone out there who might be unaware, 
Uh, Adderall is a prescription medication. It's commonly given to people with attention deficit disorder and uh, narcolepsy, I believe. And, uh, you know, I don't have uh, either of these things, to the best of my knowledge. But the reason I wanted to take Adderall is because I've been hearing about it from writers for years. And, yeah, I mean, frankly, I think I'm late to this party. Uh, possibly egregiously late. And, uh, obviously, writers have been taking amphetamines for decades. Uh, personally, I've never been into that. I've never really liked amphetamines. Uh, I feel like they have a downside that is significant. Uh, but this particular iteration is prescription-based, and my interest in it is rooted in a basic curiosity about what kind of performance enhancement it might offer in the literary realm. Meaning, uh, does it confer some sort of advantage in the way that, say, you know, anabolic steroids do for athletes? You know, is this the, the equivalent of literary steroids? So I took the pill at home, and then I rode my bike over to a coffee shop in Hollywood, and, uh, you know, it, it kicked in pretty quickly. Like by the time I arrived at the coffee shop, I could feel the effects in, you know, my chest, in my pupils. I was uh, super focused, energized. I felt as though I had uh, cat-like reflexes. And I walked up to the counter and uh, proceeded to order a large coffee which immediately occurred to me as being an absurd choice. <laughs> because, you know, here I am, I'm already on amphetamines, and now I'm ordering a large coffee, which uh, then caused me to wonder if there was anything dangerous about uh, the combination, which then led to uh, mild paranoia and thoughts of a tragic early death. I started to become hyper-aware of my heartbeat, and I, I saw myself collapsing the victim of a, of a sudden uh, heart attack, and so on. And then I paid the barista, and I took a table over by the wall, and I opened my laptop, and I tempered my mild paranoia, and I began to work. And, you know, what I can tell you is that I did not move for about six hours. And that alone is pretty strange for me. And beyond that, I had no desire to move. No appetite, no restlessness, nothing. And I had plenty to say. I was typing fast. I was engaged. Uh, I think my peripheral vision was somehow less apparent, if that makes sense. There, were, like, there was a, a tunneling sort of effect visually. My computer screen was everything. <laughs> it was like the entire room. It had me in its tractor beam. And, uh, you know, as for the writing and the quality of the writing... Uh, it was it was fine. The, the words came easily, probably with less self-criticism than usual, though I have to be careful to say that it was nothing extraordinary. It's not like this was some sort of magical, mystical, creative event for me. It was more just like, you know, I felt really chatty. I had a lot of mental energy. And frankly, I wish I would have had more time. I think I could have done a 10-hour session. But then, you know, on the negative side, uh, you know, it's just speed. That's all that Adderall is. And, you know, speed uh, has a well-documented uh, history of uh, negatives. It's uh, Adderall is speed with a fancy brand name. And, you know, whatever. I think it can help some people. The fact that it's given to kids astonishes me. 
It's just speed <laughs> for children. I don't get that. Uh, so, you know, I took a pretty mild dose and it was out of my system relatively quickly. Uh, but I did feel, I think in the aftermath, uh, a little bit hungover, just in the sense that like my brain felt a little soft, nothing terrible, but a little noticeable. And, uh, you know, I also wonder is, you know, is Adderall, uh, or, or anything like it, is that the equivalent of uh, Dumbo's feather? If you can recall Dumbo, the, uh, Disney elephant. Like from a writerly perspective, is that what Adderall is? Is it Dumbo's feather? Do I really need this? Uh, can't I fly uh, without the feather? <laughs> I should be able to fly without the feather. I don't need this feather. And uh, then, of course, you know, there's the issue of diminishing returns. Like maybe it works well in the beginning, but then over time, I think you need more. And then it just becomes this tiresome process. You can't sleep. Can you sleep? Or no, maybe you then need Xanax to sleep to balance it out. It just seems like a lot of work. And I don't think I'm physically equipped for this. Plus, I, you know, I'm 38 years old and I'm a dad. <laughs> uh, I'm a clean living man. I'm very boring. So I hope this isn't disappointing to you. Uh, I, I feel kind of old saying all this. And I feel like everyone's been doing this stuff all around me for the past decade and I'm only now getting around to try it. So, uh, on the one hand, I feel kind of lame, but then on the other hand, this is pretty normal for me. I tend to be uh, late to anything, uh, trend related, any kind of cultural trend. I'm a late adopter. So I'd be curious to know your thoughts. If any of you out there take Adderall regularly to write, uh, if you think it helps you or hurts you, uh, or whatever, or if you don't take it, for some sort of uh, well-defined reason. Uh, let me know your thoughts. You can leave a voicemail over at otherpeoplepod.com, the show's official website. Just click on send voicemail over on the right side of the page. And, uh, you know, do you guys think it's like juicing? You think it's unfair that some writers use this stuff while the rest of us are limited to uh, coffee? <laughs> I mean, I guess not, right? There, there's no rules. As a writer, you can take whatever you want. Your health is of no concern to your readers. <laughs> if the book is good, it doesn't matter if you uh, wrote it during a year-long crystal meth bender, drinking yourself into oblivion, and uh, decimating your internal organs. It's not your reader's problem if you're on dialysis. They just want good product. They want good literary product. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. 
It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Mitchell S. Jackson. His debut novel, The Residue Years, has been causing quite a stir. It is available now from Bloomsbury, and I'm really pleased to have a chance to talk with him. Uh, he's, he's traveled quite a road to get to this moment, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing about it. Here he is, folks. This is Mitchell S. Jackson, and his novel, once again, is called The Residue Years. You know, what's interesting is I never really knew that part of Portland that most people think about because um, I grew up in the community of Northeast Portland where um, we didn't really have a lot of white people around. So that they, they were all kind of sealed off from we, we had to go pretty far to kind of run into that kind of culture. So um, the, the stuff that I write about in the book was just that was my world and I didn't really uh, leave outside of that world. So, you know, most of my friends, we played basketball um it it seemed like when i was young too like there was a bunch of single parents like i remember going to spend a night at someone's house and they were like whoa your mom and dad live here like that's crazy <laughs> you got a daddy <laughs> um so it was a lot of that and then you know uh it was also probably mm, early to mid 80s like prostitution seemed like it was everywhere like everyone's father or uncle or you know older cousin was was a pimp and then after that era passed, it was the gang and kind of crack epidemic. So um, it was markedly different than from, from uh, you know, the Portlandia, which I actually haven't seen, but what I've heard about. So, okay, so that's, that, that's kind, of, it's kind of interesting because, like, I was, you know, I think at first blush you might think, like, my God, if you're uh, African-American and growing up in Portland, you would have some sort of, like, it's only, it would almost be like you're an anthropologist, like, you know, surrounded by, <laughs> surrounded by like this, uh, you know, strange hippie culture or something. But, you know, the, the neighborhood that you grew up in and the part of the city that you grew up in was like, was it pretty much exclusively black or was it? Yes. Okay. I mean, exclu I, I went to, you know, my, uh, if, if you had like a white kid in your class, like you really had something going. Um, and maybe that's just because I did, I went to, you know, the schools I just predominantly, uh, African-American, because um, we did have, like, other schools where there was a, uh, like, a you know, a bigger population of white kids, but I just, I never attended those schools. Well, maybe middle school for a little while, but pretty much I was at the, I was at the black school. And did you, did you have any white classmates? You had, like, a couple? Yeah, 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 definitely. I had, I had some, um, some white cups, and I went, <clears throat> I actually lived in Vancouver, Washington, which is kind of like, you know, New Jersey from New York. And uh, out there, it's like all white kids, you know, then you're the only black kid. So it was a, I went to school out there for a year and a half, and that was a completely different experience. But in Portland, yeah, I had a few. It wasn't, 
uh, I can't remember if like I really hung out with them, but I, I definitely at school, you know, they, we weren't having any slumber parties, but at school <laughs> we were friends. Okay, because I was going to ask, you know, because I think like, you know, my experience, I grew up in kind of a, a pretty lily white suburb in the Midwest, and like we had some uh, minority students, but like they were few and far between. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And then like I'm, I, I guess it seems like a kind of a. And I, I never have really known, I don't think, white kids who went to an all-black school or who were, like, yeah. you know, that that far uh, removed. Like, did they did they assimilate well? Were they picked on? Um, uh, let's see. No, I think most of the kids who were in that situation, like, they had been around, you know, African-Americans for so long. They, they kind of – the only thing that was really white about them was that they were white people. Like, they – they, culturally, they were just like us, and um, I think that probably helped them. I don't remember anyone getting, you know, rasped too much uh, when we were young. Well, and, and you know, the uh, thing, yeah. the thing too, is that you think about a city like Portland, and like, you know, it's it's got kind of that uh, hippie reputation, the Portlandia reputation. It's like a really mm-hmm. liberal city with like this inclusiveness, but. Um, is there like could you feel like racial tension because i think that city also has like a pretty doesn't it have a kind of like a uh maybe i'm misremembering it maybe it's san francisco that in its history like had like a very negative racial past but did you sense that growing up or do you find it to be more tolerant than say uh cities in the american south would be or oh yeah definitely more tolerant than than the south and i i mean i didn't experience you know cities in the south until i got out of my teens, but <clears throat> yeah, I don't remember. And, and again, because it was predominantly African American, so like even if you if you had you know if you were of another ethnicity and you didn't like black people, that just wasn't the area you were going to go to to voice that opinion. So uh, it, it might have just been we were insular from it, you know. And I didn't, I just didn't get a chance to. I'm glad, luckily, I didn't, I didn't get that kind of. Um, I didn't get that kind of feeling from the people that I was around. Well, and you and you and you mentioned earlier uh, in the conversation that like there was a, I forget how you put it. I mean, there was like the the uh, hookers and pimps era followed by the cra- yeah. the crack the crack yeah. cocaine era. Like <laughs> there we go. Because like, and I I want to say I read somewhere once that Portland has more strip clubs than any other city in the country. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that statistic still holds true, but that was definitely something that I remember people bragging about that. Like, yeah, we like the strip club capital of the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, every every city needs its uh its point of pride, I guess. But yes. So, but yeah. like, what what like when it comes to like the pimp thing and the hooker thing, like, you know, if it was an era and if it was like this this kind of uh, I don't know, I don't want to use the word phenomenon because that seems. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> But, I mean, you know, if it was this, like, thing, do you have any sense of why? Um, I think that uh, because it's such a small city and then the, you know, the African-American population is actually a really small number percentage-wise, but also that we're all in the same area and kind of vying for the same opportunities, and there are few, um, that people start to kind of develop this counterculture and, and one of those countercultures was the, the the pimp area it just it was i mean i think it wasn't just portland at that time you know they were putting out the black exploitation um films and you know iceberg slim was popular and everyone wanted a jerry curl and wanted to be cool so i don't know if it was just portland but it just seemed like that was all around me because all i ever saw were black people and 
you know, I just, um, I guess maybe the cool people. And my mom, my mom's uh, boyfriend at the time, who's really, I, I call him my father, he was a pimp. So, you know, if, if you're a pimp, all of your friends are pimps, your, your brother's trying to pimp. So I probably have a really skewed um, perspective on, on on the culture, but, <clears throat> or, or the, or the uh, neighborhood, but. So, That's so, what I saw. Okay, so what your mom's boyfriend was a pimp. So was he? Yeah. Like, so were you exposed to the business at a young age? Like, was he bringing? Yeah. Was he bringing hookers yeah. home? <laughs> like, he didn't bring her. He didn't bring him home. But like, uh, we would go. Like, he would go to you know handle his business. He would take me with him. Like, we was road dogs. Like, I get to sit in his lap and drive his Cadillac, and <laughs> you know he would go. Uh, drop drop me off sometime when he had to go somewhere else, and they would babysit me for a little while. But I didn't. I, I don't think I was completely aware of it until a little later. But yeah, I was getting exposure. I guess kind of uh, innocuous inspo- exposure back then. So, how did your family wind up in Portland? I mean, how many generations have lived there? Uh, my father's side, my biological father, uh, he was born in Portland, and I think. I don't know if his father was born there. I didn't really uh, have a relationship with my grandfather. But my mother's family moved from Alabama. Uh, when, so my mother was born in Alabama. Uh, so I guess that's first generation Portland, yeah. So um, uh, I was the first generation, I guess, of children in the family to be actually just born and raised in Portland. And did you have like a, <clears throat> do you have a relationship with your biological dad? It doesn't sound like he was around when you were young. Yeah, he he wasn't when I was young, probably from the ages of one to about 10 or 11, he wasn't. But then uh, I ended up living with him when my mom uh, had to go to prison. She went to prison for like a year, and so I had to go stay with my biological father until I was a uh, sophomore in high school. I stayed with him. How did that go? Um, it was con- uh, contentious because he... It was a household. Like he was married, he had four other children. They lived like, uh, you know, the the Huxtables. Not not really the Huxtable, but I mean, they they had jobs and they they had stability. And I wasn't used to that. I had been going through the the uh, issue with my mother and her drug problem for so long. I kind of have taken on an adult like perspective. And so to go and be a child again, at I think I was maybe twelve or thirteen years old. Like I I didn't I didn't want it. Yeah, well, that's interesting um, because you, you said, and your mother was addicted to crack. Yeah. Okay, so you know, I think children of addicts often you have to kind of become the adult in the family or take on like adult, mm-hmm. adult roles and responsibilities at a much earlier mm-hmm. age than um, kids who don't, you know, have that particular challenge. So, um, what were you seeing? You know, like how much of it? How much of it were you exposed to? How bad was it in your house? Uh, it wasn't. My mom never kept it around us. Like the most that I would see would be her coming or going. Like sometimes she would come home and you could tell that she'd been using, you know, like you could see it in her lips. Maybe her fingernails were chipped or burned or, you know, she left with a pair of, you know, a, a, a set of clothes and came back with a different set. But I never saw a paraphernalia or drugs. Um <clears throat> So she, in that sense, she she kept it explicitly away from us, but there were always clues of what she was doing. And then uh, when I got to be, you know, a little older, she would like give me give me stuff to hold from. Like she didn't trust herself with with money, so she would say like, "Okay, hold this for me, and I'll come back and get it, or you know, take this around and get a money order so we can do this and do that." How old were you at this point? Like ten? Uh, yeah, probably like 
eight, nine, ten. Jesus. See, I think I would have just taken the money and run. <laughs> yeah, well, not if you want a place to live, you won't. <laughs> oh, my God. So, okay, so, and how did she get started uh, smoking crack? Was it, like, just, like, a um, boyfriend or just? You know, what's crazy is uh, I was, I've been working on this documentary project, and one of the things that we did is last spring, uh, she took me around, to, like we, but we went to places in where we grew up, and she would like tell me stories about, you know, the things that were happening to her back then. So she took me to the house in front of the house where she first used crack. It was actually her friend that um, her friend, I guess, had already done it. And my grand, my great grandfather had Alzheimer's, and he was missing uh, for days. And so the whole family thought they were, you know, they were kind of stressed about, you know, where is where he was and what had happened to him. And so my mom was up for a couple of days. She said she went with her friend to this party and her friend was upstairs. Uh, you know, my mom was downstairs and she said she went upstairs after like an hour, like, Hey, what are you doing? You know, let's leave. And she was like, Oh no, girl, we up here smoking. Like, you know, you can smoke some of this to get your mind off of, you know, grandpa. And she was like, well, what is that? And she's like, it's crack. And, um, I don't know how much she knew about crack at the time, but she tried it. And, that was, you know, once they say you hit that, that's pretty much it. Yeah, like I, you know, I know, I, I have said, I have a limited understanding of. I mean, I, I've seen cocaine. I know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know a little bit. It's an amphetamine or whatever, but like crack is mm-hmm. just like a cheaper, more addictive version of it. I don't know. Yeah, it's supposed to be the most addictive version of cocaine. Like it's immediate. The high is immediate because I guess it's you know rocked up and goes straight to you. Some neuron or something but yes yeah, it's, it's, it's supposed to be like a way more intense high than um than uh cocaine snorting cocaine so okay so being exposed to all this and having these kinds of responsibilities thrust upon you at a young age mm-hmm. uh did you know obviously it, it made you grow up faster um mm-hmm. and would you say that it like it it made you turn inward made you more introspective or or got you started in some respect on the path towards being a writer? I mean, is that part of it, you think? Absolutely. I uh, <clears throat> I was always, you know, for, for the in the beginning of her addiction, when I realized that it was an addiction, uh, I, I felt like a victim. Like, why is this, why, why my mother, why is this happening to me and my younger brothers, and uh, how can I stop this? And then I probably went from that kind of uh, perspective to, um, man, I'm tired of this. Like, this is embarrassing. Like, you know, uh, I can't bring my friends over the house because I don't, they're going to ask where my mom is. And it went, I started getting angry because we were having, we had to move a lot and all those kind of things. And then it went to, well, I'm not going to be a victim of this anymore. I'm going to do something about it. And then that's when I started selling drugs. Okay. And then what about the boyfriend or the guy that you refer to as your dad? Where was he throughout all this? He was around uh so i think they might have broke up for they you know off and on but i think they might have broke up for good when i was about 10 years old yeah about 10 years old my youngest brother is his biological son and he's 10 years younger than me so um they were on the outs when he was born okay okay and so then you started selling drugs at what age mm, about 14 15 years old oh okay and uh 
like to, uh, how did that like g- give me some <laughs> give me some play by play okay yeah. so i had this guy at school um we actually went to he went to um elementary school with me but uh he was a year older than me and i knew you know we knew who was hustling back then so uh it was um i want to say it was like a homecoming and i wanted some money and so i went up to him and i was like hey man you know let me get a little something so I could sell and, you know, make a little money. And he was like, all right, cool. So he gave me some. And I didn't, I didn't, I was probably too embarrassed to ask, you know, well, how do you do it? So I didn't <laughs> ask any, I didn't get any instructions. <laughs> I, I was I was just thinking that. Like, I'm just like, how, like, what's the first crack sale? Like? You, just have to, you just walk outside with yeah. some crack and just start like yeah. s- standing on the street corner. and Exactly. So I went, I knew that, I knew we had this area that, guys would just congregate like you you can walk through in there in the daytime and just see a bunch of smokers walk it looked like you know a boys in the hood movie or something <laughs> and uh so i snuck out and went there to that area but it was so many people out there i mean i'm probably exaggerating this because it's years later but it just seemed like it was a guy on every corner and i didn't know necessarily like who were the buyers and how do you approach uh would be buyer and so i was too kind of meek to go out there and 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 and, and handle my business so i went out there a couple of days and i couldn't sell anything so i took it back to him like hey man i can't do it bro like you gonna have to take this back um and then i didn't really touch any more drugs until i was a, just graduated from high school so I, that was like a dry run of hustling and then when i turned that was 17 like- and grabbed that was like your failed, oh, it's like your failed first novel, you know. Like, <laughs> exactly. That's what it was. I put it in my desk like this is wrong. I can't do this. I'm just not, I'm not gonna be a drug dealer. <laughs> this uh, drug dealer stuff is for the birds. But okay, so you had that happening and you had this like kind of tumultuous home life. Uh-huh. Um, but then like what kind of like how were you in school? Like were you good socially? Were you Yes. You were, okay. Yeah, I was I was a good student. Um, I remember several times getting like straight A's, get you know little awards for you know honor. I remember when I was like a junior in high school, I transferred to this high school, and I really wanted scholar athlete. I got like a 4.0 when I was a junior. That was really it's one of my proudest moments. Probably still one of my proudest moments. Um, and I always you know I knew how to talk to girls. That wasn't really an issue. So uh, I was social. I wasn't like an introvert. How did you know how to talk to girls? What's the secret? No, I'm, 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 uh, I'm married now, so it doesn't matter as much, but I could probably show uh, some pointers. You got to figure out what you can do better than the next man. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like I could jump rope real good or I could, you know, I play a little basketball, you know, whatever it was. And I think I was just always, people just thought I was a nice guy. Like I wasn't shifty. You You could count on me to kind of, uh, not trying to get over on you. Yeah, I was reading something. I was reading something about you online, and one of I think one of your friends described you as Urkel. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, that was in the documentary. My friend was like, "Yeah, not Urkel." Yeah, he's trying to be funny. That's okay. I get him back. <laughs> uh, trying to yeah. think of I'm trying to think of what I can do better than maybe I could. <laughs> I can podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like my podcast is way better than the next man's. But you got to let them, but you couldn't say it. You would have to let them come to it. Like, you know, I do a little podcast in here and there. They're like, oh, do you? Yeah. Yeah, have you heard of it? Yeah, yeah, other people. I don't that's know. my podcast. I don't, know if that's get, I don't know if that's getting me anywhere. I don't know if that's getting me. Um, So, okay, so good student, good athlete. Uh, uh-huh. And.
and good with the ladies, you know, but yet you're, you're, that's all countenanced against like this difficult family situation, which must've been like, must've been weighing on you. And it's not that uncommon, especially for like the eldest child in a, in a house where there's an addict for the eldest child to kind of be, uh, the fixer or the achiever. Like, is that what you think was happening? Like if you try to psychoanalyze it a little bit? Yes, definitely. Looking back, that's, that's, that's why I felt responsible for my younger brothers. I didn't want them to struggle the way we were struggling. Uh, I felt re- responsible for my mother, and so you know, she. I, I, once you realize that they're not, um, that they don't have the ability to to make the kind of decisions that are going to put you in a safe environment, then you have to start uh, figuring out ways to either assist them or to make it so you're okay no matter what decision they make so how do you do that uh you make a little money you uh provide uh, i tried to you know that's a, probably a, a, a part of the reason why i i stayed in school and and tried to do well is because i wanted them to see that no matter what was happening with us that that was still possible that you know just because mom's doing bad doesn't mean it has to ruin our life so okay, um, so, so I guess that's a pretty. I mean, that's there's wisdom in that, and it, you know, uh-huh. it's uh, it's kind of an unlikely scenario considering circumstances, and you know, you didn't have a father in the house, or I guess you you were with your father for part of high school, but um, uh-huh. like, did you have somebody in your life uh, who was mentoring you or who you were looking to for guidance, or like what? How did you did you have anything to model? Like you know what I'm saying? Like where were you? Yeah, I had a uh, my uncle. My mother's youngest brother was a, a big part of our life. He would, you know, come over, check on us. Uh, I think I might have even lived with him for, I don't know, two months or something. My grandfather was always around, like, especially when we were young. Like, if my mom would mess off the rent money, my grandfather would pay the rent or buy groceries or something. So they were always there. And they, you know, those. my grandfather was married for like 40 years. Uh, and he was, you know, a college educated. He grew up in Alabama during, you know, not even grew up during the Civil Rights Movement, but was an adult during the Civil Rights Movement. And so for him to be college educated and then move out here and, and make a good life for himself, I always knew that that was also, you know, part of my uh, lineage. Okay. So wait, so we, he was he was from Alabama and was college educated. Um, like mm-hmm. He must have been one of the, the earliest college educated African-Americans in Alabama, right? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But you know, what's crazy is his. My great grandmother was also college educated. She uh, she was a school teacher actually. And then my grandfather, I didn't know this until much later, was actually his first job was I don't know if it was his first job, but he was a school teacher, an English teacher at that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean that stuff matters, you know. Like it, it yeah. makes it makes it make more sense. I mean, you have to have. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, one way or the other, it, whether it's your family or whether it's someone else who really takes an active role, like you have to have. I think kids have to have adults around them who, like, uh, are examples. You know. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, good examples, like some somehow, and it, without that, it's pretty tough. But. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so what were you thinking in high school? Were you writing in high school, like with any kind of literary bent, or were you mostly, um, you know, like I remember myself in high school, and it was, I was I was not that serious about anything. I think I was just like yeah. trying to talk to girls and, you know. <laughs> That's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> uh, I, um, I don't think, I didn't have any literary aspirations, but what I found later on is that I did a lot of kind of journaling and, um, 
what do you call it, like confessional writing. Like I wrote this, um, I found a piece that I wrote. It was like something for high school graduation. And I guess you must have had to write like a paragraph or something about yourself. And I wrote about my mom finding crack in my pocket. So I guess I must have been like 16 or something. And how disappointed she was and how I would never do that again. So, and I'm like, this is supposed to be like a happy, you know, I'm going to be a fireman when I graduate from high school, but I'm writing about mom finding crack in my pocket. So I guess <laughs> I was using the the writing as an outlet for, you know, disappointments then. Well, but sure. other than that, I was just, you know, I thought I was going to play D1 basketball and every girl that I liked, I wanted. So how good were you at basketball? I was solid. I was solid, and I, I was always all league in whatever league I played in. But I just, and I probably was a Division One talent, but I just, I wasn't ever going to make a mark in basketball. What position did you play? I played two guard usually. Okay, so shooter. Yeah, shooter, definitely. All right, and so um, you get you get to the end of high school. Your mother, mm-hmm. your mother is still using at this point, or is she? Yeah, she is. Okay, yeah. and so then you go to college i went to junior college junior college okay and then uh-huh. is this when you got back into dealing crack uh yes after when i graduated from um when i graduated from the summer that i graduated from high school is when i really got started and what precipitated that was it like okay now i'm out i gotta make i gotta make my way in the world and make some money or yeah some yeah definitely i'm like you know i'm going to i'm disappointed because i'm going to junior college i didn't get a d1 scholarship offer uh so i had this i lived with my mother in her apartment uh i wanted some money you know every this is when people like dudes my my age are really starting to we call it balling like they're really they're riding around in lexuses and benzes with rolexes and so now i'm feeling the pressure of you know riding around in my i think i had like an 84 Buick Regal with a bad alternator, <laughs> <laughs> just all bad. Like my guy pulls up in a Lexus ES three hundred, um, so I felt that pressure. And then also I, my my brothers were you know in high school and in middle school at that time, so I wanted to be able to provide for them. So it was like you know a three prong kind of motivation. So okay, so you you, you get back into it, and then uh, how long is it before you're in trouble? Uh, so I lasted from 18 to, I think, 20. So from 17 to 21. Okay, well, okay. That's a pretty good run. <laughs> it's a pretty good run. That's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> pretty good run. Before the, before the wheels come off. And, like, during that, time, uh-huh. during that time, you're in junior college. You're play, Are you playing basketball at junior college? Yeah, I played for two schools, yep. Okay. One in uh, Washington and one in Oregon. Okay. And, uh, I mean, and like, were you ever using no, 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 Never. no. I was too scared of that. Yeah, no way. Well, see, but that's, I mean, because I feel like that's kind of a rare experience. So that seems to be sort of the rules, that you should never use if you're dealing, because that leads right, to trouble. Yeah. But most people fall off that wagon, it seems like. It's yeah, a, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't get that one. Yeah, I feel like that would complicate things quickly. <laughs> yes. Be smoking, be smoking all your products. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Uh, so how did you uh, eventually get busted? Like, how did that all go down? So, um, well, I think before I even got busted, I, it was getting much more complicated because people knew what I was doing. Like, I went out and bought a Lexus and a bunch of jewelry and, you know, so, and uh, again, I'm still in the same community, so people 
know what's going on. There's no, you know, a guy riding around 19 in the Lexus is, you know, uh, marked. And so I started getting robbed. Uh, I got robbed probably three times, you know. One time some guys, like, kidnapped me and put a gun to my head. I'm like, oh, man, I, I'm not built for this kind of uh, life. But also I felt um, I had started de- dealing with this guy who was much uh, bigger in the trade than me. And so um, I felt indebted to him in a way that I didn't even know if I could quit. So that those were those were kind of the complications that I had. But me getting drunk, uh, pop was just like <clears throat> riding one day with a girl in the car, and I don't have a seatbelt on, and I got drugs and a gun on me, and they see the gun and find the drugs. So went, no big federal bust or anything, just no seatbelt. They pulled you over. Pulled me over, and they it was a night, so they flashed the light in the car and saw the gun uh, on the floor, and then when they kind of drew down on us. Oh, we did, what happened? Did your stomach just sink? Oh my God, I was I was scared because I'm like, damn, if I move, they might shoot me. And I got this girl in the car, and I want her to get shot, and she doesn't know that I got dope on me. Like it was just a bad situation. I couldn't run. I felt like if I run, I'll leave her, and she'll probably kill on me anyway. So wait, she didn't <laughs> she didn't know that you had drugs on you? No, did no. She, did she, she didn't did know. she know that you were a drug dealer? She knew that I was a drug dealer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because she's like, where did you get this car? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. No, I was it. actually riding in my stuffer. I was in my, I had a little Honda. Um, so I wasn't even in the Lexus. That would have really been, I didn't, I tried not to ride around with drugs in my Lexus. That's bad news. And and so wait, like the gun, like you don't sound like a, a particularly violent sort. Like was the gun there just like no. for self-protection or some sort of like. Yeah, it's like, you know, you get robbed a couple of times. You're tired of this. I'm, I'm going to shoot somebody next time they pull a pistol on me. Damn. Okay, so and like when somebody puts a gun to you, they put a gun to your head and kidnap you, you said? Yeah, well, I don't, it's, I mean, it is legally kidnapping, but kind of like, you know, put the gun to your head and they keep driving and you don't know where you're going for a little while and then they just let you go. And you, you did you think... So you, not like tied up in a house or anything. That had to be terrifying. That was one of the times I thought I was going to die. What was the other time? <laughs> How many times have there been? Uh... Uh, probably like three. There's this guy from my, um, he was actually went to high school with me and, uh, I was coming out of this girl's house. Well, number one, I thought somebody, somebody tried to kick in my door. Um, I used to live in the, in the neighborhood. And, uh, one day my girlfriend's daughter ran upstairs and was like, Oh, someone's trying to kick the back door in. So I went to go look for my gun, but someone had stole the gun out of my house. So I didn't have it. But luckily my neighbors saw the people trying to do it. And they uh, called the police. So the guys ran off. And then I went to the guy who I was dealing with, and I was like, hey, man, you know, somebody tried to kick my door. And he was like, yeah, I heard, you know. And this is the guy that knows everything that's happening in the streets. He's like, yeah, someone told him that you had a couple hundred thousand dollars in there and some kilos, and they was coming to get it. Now, I didn't have anywhere near that in the house. So had they come in and been asking for that, who knows what would have happened. So the guy told me, my guy told me who it was. And so I guess word got around to the guy, and so I was coming out of the house out of the house early one morning, probably like 5 a.m., and I saw a guy on a bicycle way down the street, <clears throat> and um, I was fumbling for my keys at my door, and then by the time the guy got to me and I recognized who it was, I, I was at my door, but I, I still didn't get, I wasn't in the car, and the, in the car I had the gun, but luckily I didn't have it. So he's like, hey, man, I heard you was looking for me. And I'm like, um, 
I looked, you know, down the street, wasn't anyone, it was like five in the morning, no one's up. And he's like, he pulls his gun out and points at my chest. He's like, are you looking for me? You looking for me? And I was like, nah, man. He's like, yeah, that's what I thought, because I'm a real killer. And I was like, yeah, okay, all right, all right. So I felt fortunate because I think if I had got my keys and got in the car, I probably would have shot him. Or if I had the gun, I probably would have said something that provoked him. But that same guy, like five months later, shot his friend at a party. And then his mom was like, you know, don't do that anymore. And then he threw his mom off and shot the dude like three or four more times in the face. So he murdered his, one of his friends. Then he goes to jail and murders um, another one of his friends in prison. So he was definitely capable of it, and there was no witnesses. So I feel like that's one day that I was spared. God, man. Just like, and just like, who knows? Like, if you have a gun and then, then there's a gunfight, I mean, anything could right. happen. Right. Anything could happen. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so you get, uh, you get uh, arrested, and then you go to prison, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So prison, like uh, day one, what is that? I mean, what happens when the cell door closes that first time? Like, are you just like, oh, So <laughs> before prison, two things that happened to me that were uh, memorable. One of them is that uh, when I was getting sentenced, well, I got sentenced, and then there was a guy, and they kept me in the courtroom, and there's this guy that got sent. He was older, probably like 40s at that time. And he got sentenced right after me, and the judge was like, I give you, uh, I think he got sentenced like 48 months or something. And the guy started laughing when the judge gave him 48 months. So now I got 16, and I'm in tears almost, and he gets 48, and he's laughing. So (laughs) we both get escorted out of the courtroom. And uh, so we became kind of friends, and later on I was like, man, how was it? That the judge gave you 48 months and you were laughing. He said, because he could have gave me 60. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's his mentality. I mean, that's an, um, and, that's an optimistic that's an optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the other thing was I had this, um, I grew up with this guy who, he wasn't my cousin. He's actually my brother's cousin, but we called each other cousins. And he was like the most notorious gang member. If you Googled him and Googled Little Smurf in Portland, you would see there's a documentary on him. Like in the documentary, it says that he was responsible as either the shooter at one point in 96, I think, is either the shooter or the target for, I want to say it's like 90% of Portland's gang shootings. Like he was a crazy little young dude. And his name was but little his name was Little Smurf. His name was Little Smurf. We got a big Smurf and a little Smurf in our city. <laughs> Let's see that's um, and, like, and, and, and they're like the most notorious like you don't you got they got those names but like don't mess with Big Smurf or Little Smurf. I that was, was gonna like say the, I was gonna say like no disres- <laughs> no disrespect but like little Smurf <laughs> doesn't sound that intimidating. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um so they Little Smurf had robbed some people, and the people had came here and were murdering people to look looking for him. And so he actually went to jail for, I think it was a racketeering or something, but everyone said that he was dead. And so when I got sentenced, they take you out of the courtroom to some kind of, like, holding cell. And I heard this guy, he had a really unique voice, and he was like, cousin, cousin. I heard you was coming. I heard you was coming. And I was like, what are you doing? I thought you were dead. He was like, no, nah, man, I ain't dead. I've been in Folsom. He was like, are they about to let me out of here? You know, if they let me out, man, I'm gone. 
and they did let him out, like, I think maybe a couple months later, he ended up getting murdered, like, Ugh. three months later. Ugh. But, but that was, like, the last time I saw him. And I, I thought he was there. So it looked like I was seeing a ghost at that time. So those are two moments that kind of stick out for me. But just going to prison is, like, you know, it's such, again, such a small community. Guys go away. I go to prison. I know four or five, six guys in the prison. They're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, same thing you are, time. <laughs> right. I just thought I'd come stay for a couple months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm to check you out, man. I ain't seen you on the streets in a while. <laughs> but, I mean, were you, was it, uh, fr- I mean, like, frightening? Was it, I mean. Yeah. I, I, like, I, I, this is, this is, like, if I imagine myself uh, going to prison, like, that first night I'm sitting in my cell, like, that's got to be yeah. a heavy realization. Like, did you have... Any kind of epiphany, or uh, did, is this when you started to write more seriously, or you know what happened to you while you were in prison <clears throat> as an individual? Did you experience any like significant changes that you can point to, or? Um, well, uh, so the when I first got there, I was definitely scared. But I think one of the things that guy that I told you that said they could have gave me sixty, it was I don't know if he was like he's not a, fa- a fairy godfather or something, but so they, they took us from the state. We got sentenced, you know, right behind each other. They took us from there to the same holding cell. They, they take you to what's called an intake center before you go to prison and you, a place you stay for like a month to get you ready to go to prison. They took us to the same, uh, you know, intake center. We were in the same pod. They took us the same day from that intake center to um, prison and then to the same prison. And so this guy was along the way was telling me everything that was going to happen. He knew where we were going because of our charges. He knew about what day to expect. He knew when we like he really was like watching over me and giving me information. So he really made it almost a, I mean as comfortable as it could be experience because it wasn't. I knew what was happening. Was, um, so, was, was this kind of one of those prisons where you had like minimum security and like TVs in your cells, or was it? Yeah. I started uh, at a minimum, so we had a uh, we didn't have TVs, but we 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 lived in a dorm, and you know I had a job where I could go off. I worked at actually the the same state hospital that one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like I, I worked at that state hospital for a little while. Wait, and, is it um, still a mental hospital? Yeah, it was. Uh, yep, it was. Yep. So what were you doing? Were you doing, like? Uh, I was like a orderly. Uh-huh. Had to clean up, make beds. She, I saw. I learned how to do hospital corners on a bed. Uh, yes, I did that probably for like three months, and uh, then they had to move me because I had to take a drug program. They moved me to a medium prison, and that's where I actually paroled from. Okay. Um, was that, was that worse, worse or better? Or? Uh, it was about the same because, again, the, the crazy thing is that guy went before me to that prison. So when I came, he was like, yeah, he had welcome. You know, like he really <laughs> made – like I don't, I don't know why he was put there, but he really made my prison experience – like, I guess the best it could have possibly been, like, to have him there. And the crazy thing, when we got off the transport bus at the first prison, people, like, look out the window to see who's coming in. And people were, like, yelling his name when we got off the bus, like, hey, Tony, glad you're back. You want your old bunk and you want your job? And, like, literally they were saying this to him while he's – and he's, like, we're still in shackles. He's, like, you know, trying to wave to people and all that. I'm like, this is crazy. So he's like basically like your concierge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So what is your mother doing during this time? Um, she, what, I mean, you still kind of struggling. Uh, I don't know if she was working. Uh, 
trying to do the best she could by my youngest brother, who was probably in high school at that time. Uh, just, you know, it's it's been a, a, a struggle for my mother since, I mean, since probably the mid-80s. And, and still ongoing, like with addiction and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know when the last, I don't know when the addiction ended, if it's ended. I, I, I try to stay away from that kind of conversation. I, I look for clues and I haven't seen any clues, so I'm... Um, uh, you know, the optimist in me believes that it's it's over or that it hasn't happened in a long time. Yeah. And then what about your little brothers? Like, have they managed to escape the the difficulties or have you kept a close yeah. eye on them or what, what's happened? With yeah, them? definitely keep a close eye on them. My, uh, my middle brother, he lives in Portland still and he, he's married and, uh, you know, he has a job. He's never been in trouble, uh, really with the law. He's, uh, never sold drugs as far as I know. And then my younger brother, who had like some um some kind of behavioral problems when he was young but he's you know he's uh actually uh writing for a magazine now and he he lives in New York he moved to New York about uh, I guess 2 years ago now so he's doing well so cool. uh every all of them they they got out pretty much unscathed wow okay and so then you you said you got paroled yeah. from the medium security prison uh-huh okay and then 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 what happens so i had a scholarship uh uh, an academic scholarship at the university, Portland State University, when I got caught. I was a junior, and I told them that I had a family emergency and that I was going to be gone, so they held my scholarship <laughs> for me. So when I came home, I, I got out July eighth, 1998, and I went back to college. It must have been like the end of August or September. I think we were in quarter, so maybe it was like the beginning of September. I was back in college, so I finished my undergrad, and then <clears throat> I wanted to be a news anchor, so I uh, I got an internship at a local at the local uh, CBS station, and I worked for a little while. And then I ended up getting a full time gig at the uh, ABC station, and uh, that's where I kind of started. You know, I was writing news scripts, and I, I knew that I liked writing at that point. I just didn't like the kind of writing I was doing. And one day I was searching the surfing the web and, and saw that Portland State was starting. A graduate writing program. I thought, oh man, it'd be cool to have a master's. Not it'd be cool to be a writer, but just to have a master's. Like I'm going to hood. And that's like a Rolex. No one has a master's. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to like you have to lug that diploma around. I mean, I guess you right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, they know it's a small place. They're like, oh, Mitch went and got a master's. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> go back to school, <laughs> get a master's and shit. You know how it is. You could put you could like somehow mount the diploma on like the door of like the Buick Regal or whatever it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so that's, I mean, that's an interesting transition. I mean, you go from prison back to school, so that was always on your yep. mind. Like, while you were in prison, you're like, I'm going back to school when I get out of here. Right, um, right. And then to show up, like, you didn't tell anybody what had happened. No, Did anybody find out that you had been in jail for selling crack? No, no one in school, not any of my professors or the, the staff at school. No, they didn't know. Okay, and then what about these, like, jobs? Like, you know, did you ever confide in anybody, like, at ABC, where you're like, oh, by the way? Uh, did I tell? Nope. I just did. I feel I checked. I lied. I checked the no box on the felony conviction and just, you know, took my chances. Wow. That's unbelievable. And then and then you decide you're going to go get your master's, and, and you got in to mm -hmm. the, the Portland State uh, MFA program? Yeah, it was Diana Abu Jabbar. I actually, uh, I was late. I was late applying for the program, so I, 
uh, I called her up, and I'm like, you know, I really like the podcast. She's like, well, actually, you missed the deadline, but, uh, you know, if you can get your package together in a week or so, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll consider you. And so I went and got some recommendations, but I had never wrote a piece of fiction before, so I went and bought, like, I probably gardeners how to write fiction or whatever that book is called. And then I, I went and bought Go Telling on the Mountain, and I read that, and I wrote, what, like 10 pages. It's supposed to be 25 pages. I think I might have wrote 10 or 12 pages. And I called her back. I said, I got my recommendations. I got the application done, and I got 10 pages. And if you give me another week, she's like, okay, bring me what you have. So I brought her what I had, and then I wrote the other 10 pages, and I called back, and I was like, okay, I got the other 10 pages for her. And she said, don't worry, you're in. No way. So yeah. was the, were the writing samples that you submitted any good, do you think, in retrospect? Uh, I, I, they couldn't have been. I, it was my first, it was the very first piece of fiction I ever wrote. So I don't imagine it was that good. I mean, I look at stuff that I wrote at the end of my first graduate program, I'm like, that's trash, but maybe they saw something in me that I didn't see. Or I was the black guy applying for the last spot, and it looked good to have a black guy in the first year of the program. I don't know, but... It worked out. It worked out. And so once you got in, um, you know, you did what is it a two year program? Yes. Yeah, two year program. What did you write while you were there? Uh I kept I had those so when I was in uh prison I uh wrote about a hundred pages of my quote life story. And so that is really I came home and I and I I wanted to do something with it, but I put it away. And then when I got to the program, I was just determined that that was going to turn into a novel. And so, really, all I ever worked on was that novel. Um, I don't remember like I I actually I went to this program called Hearst and Write, which is a a, write, a workshop for African American writers in D.C. And uh, they uh, selected this uh, excerpt of my novel to go in this anthology called Gumbo, which it featured a, all the black writers at that time, like Terry McMillan, John Edgar Wyman, you know, Eric Jerome Dickey, all of those people who were writing at the time. And so that really gave me a lot of, uh, a lot of confidence. But the other thing was it was an excerpt. So I never wrote a short story. Uh, I don't think I wrote one short story while I was in my first graduate program. No, you know, I didn't either. I was working on a novel. I just, <clears throat> I, you know, I don't know what it was, but I felt like if I was going to try to write a book-length project and try to sell it, a novel stood a better chance. I think that right, yeah, the basic logic. Hard thinking. Head. Well, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, short story collections are. Uh, I mean, it's always tough, no matter what. But story collections are even tougher. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, you know, something that strikes me about you is the fact that. Um, you you knocked on all these doors and did all of these things and like it says something about like what's the old line from Woody Allen like eighty five percent of life is just showing up or whatever like yeah. most people don't you know like most people don't do what you did and do you have any sense of why you're like that I mean it seems like you have kind of like a an innate confidence in yourself or yeah where, where does that come from I mean you know I think probably from my circumstances when I was young and just having enough successes to think that no matter what was happening, that I could make the best of it. Like, you know, if you go to school and you take it, like if you go to school, first of all, if you can get to school and there's, let's say there's the lights are off and there's nothing in the refrigerator, but you make it to school, you know, you get your free lunch and your milk and they take it and you take a test and then you get an A on the test and you, come back home and maybe mom's there or maybe she isn't. Now, I might be exaggerating this. I don't want to say this, like this was my everyday experience, but sometimes this would happen. 
And that gives you a certain confidence that, well, if I can do this under these circumstances, what could I do under other circumstances? And also, I'm stronger than the rest of these people mentally. Right. And so I think I kind of carried that with me throughout my adulthood that, you know, even when I went to prison, I was like, well, you know, your guys are tougher. Maybe they're tougher physically or they think that, you know, that their, uh, you know, physical prowess is a strength for them. But I always felt like you could never break me mentally. See, I, I, so I think that's kind of it. I feel like a pussy just talking to you. Like I'm such a... <laughs> <laughs> you would have told you would have told uh, uh, the guy you, you got the pistol. <laughs> yeah, I would have just collapsed. You looking for me? Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I would have just collapsed into a fetal position at any number of moments. Um, so okay, so you said that you, that was your first graduate program. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So that you then went to a second one, and was that when you right. went to New York? Uh huh. Yeah. So I didn't think that I was. I knew I wasn't ready when I finished. Well, I knew I wouldn't be ready about the second year of the program. Uh, the first, between the first and second year of the Portland State program, I knew I wasn't going to be ready. And I thought, well, where is the publishing industry? Okay, it's in New York. I said, so if you really want to make it happen, you have to go where the industry is. And then after I figured that out, I was like, okay, well, what are the best programs that are in New York? And so that's how I ended up applying for NYU because I was like, I want to be where the industry is. And I want to go to the best program. And uh, luckily, they let me in. Damn. And then, uh, like, I, I want to I say I read something online where you were trying to finance it. Um, yeah. Like, how did that go? Talk, talk about that particular. Yeah, that didn't go well at all. And I, I, I look back at that headline. <clears throat> it was, wannabe novelist seeks benefactor. Like, it made me <laughs> feel like, now, imagine this, though. Like, I've been hustling. I've owned a, I bought a home in 19... I, you know, counted up a couple of dollars. Now they got me looking like, you know, a charity case would want to be a novelist. So it, it was, I didn't want to have to pay $100,000. So I was trying to think of, it was like an ingenious, to me it was a hustle, but it was a legal hustle. It, nothing ever became of it. I was but say, I, I didn't I like it, the I way that it, they portrayed me. I thought it sounded. Huh? Like a, I thought it sounded brilliant. <laughs> like you did. Well, I mean, well, the know, idea was good, but yeah. there, it didn't. It didn't bear any fruit. And then also, you know, to to have that 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 uh, identity uh, in the community, and then for people to kind of look at you as someone who's basically begging. It. it I didn't like it. I didn't like. It. I look back at that thing now, and I'm like, I can't believe they did that to me. <laughs> so so <laughs> I want to be like, what about now, player? <laughs> so well, yeah, right, exactly. So how, <laughs> how did you? So you went to to NYU, and you what did you just eat the student loans and just go and just yeah, like, I ate the student loans, and actually I went from between my first and second year, I went to the uh, program director uh, Melissa Himmerly at the time, and I was like, hey, listen, this is expensive. Like y'all got to come with some more money, and she gave me a couple more dollars. Okay. Um, I've always just, you know, been a person who just, how am I going to make the best of this, man? Like, you guys are really killing me with these loans. Like, come on now. I know I got to be good enough for a couple of dollars. Well, you know, and it's, into, you know, it, it's a, it's like uh, an issue that so many people face. But, I mean, for the purposes of this show, it's like an issue that I think a lot of writers are up against. Because it's already such a difficult profession in which to make a good living. And then you... Right. You know, you, you need the time to write, and the MFA programs are often the best opportunity to, like, you know, have some shelter to go write and, mm -hmm. and also to meet other writers and to get the kind of instruction that you uh, need to develop or whatever. But then, 
And you get out and you're you're carrying the weight of this debt and yeah. it's like an MFA in creative writing isn't necessarily like an easy ticket to repaying that debt in right yeah. you know, quick fashion. Sure so I don't know, it's like it you know, I I think that it's ballsy. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to have yeah. a certain amount of courage to to make the jump. Definitely. Definitely, so I agree. Okay, so you finished up at NYU, and then did you have your novel ready at that point? Absolutely not. So, I mean, I had a full manuscript, but it wasn't ready. Uh, so I just, you know, I found a few writers to kind of, uh, we had little workshops that never kind of took off. We'd go for two or three weeks, and then someone wouldn't show up, and then two people wouldn't show up, and it would be over. And I think the turning point was I took Gordon Lish's workshop, I want to say 2010, he had a, a workshop at this place called the Center for Fiction in New York. And the reason why I took Gordon, I guess everything was really calculated. Like, I started reading about Gordon, and then I read the writers that he worked with. Like, I read Carver, I read Barry Hanna, I read Amy Hempel. And uh, I, I really liked his uh, ideals about writing. And I said that the writers that he you know worked with, I admired them, but I said, well, he's never worked with a writer of color, at least not that I knew of. I said, I wonder what would happen if Lish's um, kind of ideals about writing were married to my voice and perspective. Like, what would that create? Because I, I, I hadn't seen it before, and so I took his class with that in mind, and uh, he kind of took a, a liking to me. He singled me out as, you know, someone of promise, and once he did that, like, he would call me at night and you know, Jackson, I think you can beat them all. And, you know, if you, if you stick with me, I'm going to get you to the promised land. And, you know, all those kind of uh, coaching kind of, uh, you know, tactics. And when he started working with me on sentences, and he really he really changed my whole way of thinking about writing. How so? Uh, so, uh, well, I, at first I didn't, like I knew, I knew why I liked the writers that he worked with, but his emphasis on sentences and then this idea of kind of uh, recursion or revision, like that you don't really go forward, that you look back to see what's next to produce your next sentence. Um, and I think one of the things that I always admire was, or that I do admire is when you read someone and you can't predict where they're going in either a sentence or in the plot, specifically in a sentence, because I love sentences so much. And I was like, damn, how do they do that? And then when he showed me, how they might be able to do it like that was he opened it up but i think maybe more than even his uh his tenets about writing was just the fact that this person who people applauded for so long thought that i could be really good well sure yeah i mean like i think as like as a writer like especially at the beginning but probably at any stage you always you need some bursts of confidence you know you need yeah. you need those nudges along the way in whatever form they you know like you happen to get mm -hmm. it from like Gordon Lish, which is not a bad person to get it from. <laughs> right. But yeah. I mean, just like a, a short story acceptance, uh, an editor at an online magazine, whatever it might be, telling you like, yes, or like, keep going, or this is good. Um, yeah. That's fuel, man, you know? And and without it, it can sometimes be hard to sustain yourself on your own energies yeah. you know, uh, by themselves, you know? Yeah. So did Gordon did Gordon edit uh, an earlier version of this book? <laughs> like, did he go through the full manuscript he... with you? He went, I sent him the manuscript, and uh, this is probably, I took him twice 
And uh, so after the first year, I'm thinking like, oh, that's my that's my mentor. You know, he's gonna love this, and I've been working so hard with him. So I send him the manuscript, and he sends me a postcard back. And the postcard, this is not verbatim, but this is basically what it said: it was like, Mitch, throw it away. He said, it's uh, meagerness will be the mark of your life if you publish it. So. Now, I, like, sat on my couch for maybe three or four hours, like, damn near in tears, and I called him up, and he was like, Mitch, you got to throw it away, man. It's not good, and, you know, it's you, 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 it's got some of the things that I like about you, but it's it's not a novel, and blah, 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 and I'm like, damn, <clears throat> I can, you know, listen to him and throw it away, or I can keep plowing on it, and that's what I decided to do. And did he, what did he say? Did you tell him you were going to do that, or did you just start working, and then? I didn't tell him. And the crazy thing is he called me back like two weeks later in the middle of the night, maybe like 3 in the morning. He's notorious for the midnight to 6 a.m. phone calls. <laughs> and he called me and he was like, Mitch, um, uh, that, that manuscript, he said, I want you to get it together and I'm going to write this, this uh, address down. So he gave me an address and he said, I want you to take the, ma- I want you to take the manuscript over there and write this, this note and leave it with the doorman. And so he sent me over to my agent's apartment. Well, she wasn't my agent then. He sent me over to his friend's apartment with the manuscript and a note from him that I wrote. And uh, she took a meeting with me, and then, you know, a year later she was representing me. Okay, so and what happened in the intervening year? Is that you just revising the manuscript? Yeah, she told me she didn't want to take it on in the beginning. She said that it needed work and asked me what I thought about it, and she gave me notes, and so I worked on it for another year under her guidance. Okay. And then I gave it back, and she was like, okay, let's send it out now. Well, Still didn't tell me she was going to represent me, just like, let's send it out. Right, right. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> yeah. But you know, what, you know what occurs to me? Like, like it... Like I, I go back in my mind to what we talked about earlier about you having uh, the gumption to like knock uh-huh. on these doors and to try these things and to just you know it's just in knowing like I got to go to New York like I wish I would have had that sense it's something I wish mm-hmm. I would have done you know but um, there's that and then there's also uh, a, a self awareness in knowing when something is ready and when something is not and you seem yeah. to, you seem to have had like a pretty good sense of when the thing was ready, or at least until you got to Gordon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I was really scared about for the whole time is that, like, if you think about it, I had, if this is an autobiographical novel, which most of it is, I had that story in 1998. Like, I was I was out of prison. You know, I could have wrote that, but I didn't have the writing skills to do it justice, so I felt like, at any point before this, had I produced that story, they would have dismissed me as just a black guy writing another hard knock life story, and it wouldn't have stood up to criticism, I think. And so I had to wait until I felt that it could stand up to the kind of criticism that strong work could stand up to. So that's why I just I kept it in my pocket for so long, because I'm like, they're going to dismiss this, because it is a cliche story, like right? It's the hard knock life story of a black guy. like been told a thousand times but I, I had to figure out how to make it my own and and make it strong enough that you know the world wouldn't just dismiss it as soon as it came out and now here you are on book tour yeah <laughs> yeah just that fast like pow and so what about the sales process like what did it take for you to uh to get the book sold? Oh. was it a, was it a long process uh it lasted mm, about three 
I think maybe like three months. Uh, I think we sent it to about 20 editors. Um, and the the crazy thing is that um, my so I had the Center for Fiction. The Center for Fiction gave me a fellowship, and um, so wait, I should yeah. So I had a fellowship from the Center for Fiction, and my editor was supposed to come to this reading, but she did. Uh, the editor that I have now, who wasn't my editor then, was supposed to come to the reading, but couldn't make it. So I did the reading, and then they had this like benefit dinner um, that was going on later. So in the interim. I went to go meet with her. So I met with maybe three editors. This was the last one I went to go meet with. And when I walked in, she had Jasmine Ward salvage the bones on her desk. And she turned the book around to me and she said, you know, your book really reminds me of this. Now, I didn't know anything about but This was like the day after Jasmine is like a finalist for the National Book Award. Right, right. And so I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, all right, cool. Now, I still don't know who Jasmine is, but I'm like, okay, I'll take it. So then she starts talking to me and she says, uh, you know, it's a shame that I passed on your book, but I just can't stop thinking about it. So in my head, I'm thinking, you passed on the book? Like, why am I sitting in front of you if you already passed <laughs> right. on my book? Who set this meeting up? <laughs> so then we start talking. She's like, but I just can't stop thinking about it, and I just want to know, what do you think can be done to it? And so I started talking to her about what I thought I could do re- revising. And she was like, okay, 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 okay. All right, that sounds good. Okay, all right. So let me think about it. I, you know, maybe I'll reconsider it. So, in the meanwhile, while she reconsidered it, the Center for Fiction had a their benefit dinner. So I go, and I'm sitting at this. T- I come to sit down at a table, round table, and I go. To sit, and the lady says, "Oh no, you can't sit there." I'm like, "Oh, I'm sorry." She's like, "Yeah, they have name tags at the table, so you need to sit over there." What's your name? I said, Mitchell Jackson. She said, "Oh, Mitchell Jackson, I heard about you." I said, oh, she said, yeah, I'm, I forgot who it was. Like, let's say I'm Susie. I'm Susie. I work at Bloomsbury. I said, oh, okay, cool. So then I go and I sit down, and then another person comes to the table, and the lady says, hey, Mike, you know, this is uh, Mitchell Jackson. He's like, oh, Mitchell Jackson, I heard about you. I'm Mike. I work for Bloomsbury. <laughs> so this happens like three more times, right? And then the, the guy who was like, a, he's on the board. His name is Peter Ganey. Um, Peter Gen, I'm sorry, at uh, – at Bloomsbury, and he's on the board at the Center for Fiction. He comes and sits down. So at this point, I realize that I'm sitting at the Bloomsbury table at the blank banquet. So I'm talking to them the whole night. And then the editor, not the editor, the publisher, George uh, Gibson, my my agent brings him over, and he says, hey, uh, Mitchell Jackson. I'm like, yeah, hi, nice to meet you. He's like, you'll be hearing from us soon. Whoa. I'm like, oh. Okay. <laughs> did you, did you, <laughs> All right. Did you just? Oh, this was like a I would a Wednesday. Him. Yeah. It's a in Friday. My agent called me like, we got an offer. Oh, and where were you? I was at the eye doctor because I had a sty. I was about to get a little light surgery on my sty. <laughs> the, the perfect place to receive such news. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that's exciting. And now the thing's out, and you're on yeah. tour, and uh, it's getting like reviewed and all over the place. And you must be pleased. It's been a long road, and I mean, you've had a hell of a, a hell of a road to this point. I think that I, it's it's safe to say it's probably uh, different than most. And uh, yeah, it's it's just um, you know it's an impressive feat, and I congratulate you on it. Uh, Thank you. Are, are you working on anything else? Are you, you have? Are you just going to yeah. take, take a moment to savor this first one, or you you already have something else in motion? Uh, something else in motion. I I put out this uh, collection last year, kind of a 
uh, it was a, I put it out myself. It's called Oversoul. And, uh, you know, it actually got some nice reviews. And uh, I, I, I did it. I actually took my advance money from Bloomsbury, a good portion of it, and did it myself, like hired a publicist, got a book designer, and did all those things because I felt like, you know, I knew my novel was going to take another 16 months to come out. And I, want, I was anxious to see how the world would report on this kind of voice I was working on. And so that was Essays and Stories, and what uh, Bloomsbury just bought that, or they recently bought it, like, a couple months ago. So I'm going to actually probably double the size of that, so, you know, a few more essays and a few more stories, and then put that out in, uh, after this book. So wow. after the paperback of Residue, that's the next one. All right, man. Well, listen, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, I wish you all the best of luck with uh, the rollout for, the ne- for this book, uh, the next book, and uh, everything that comes after. I appreciate that, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Mitchell S. Jackson. Go get his novel. It's called The Residue Years, and it is available now from Bloomsbury. You can find Mitchell online at MitchellSJackson.com. He's on the Twitter, where his handle is at Mitch S. Jackson, and he's on the Facebook, too. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. So, uh, Adderall, you know, it occurs to me that my middle-aged, uh, Adderall experiment seems or, or may seem a little bit lame in light of the conversation that I just had with Mitchell regarding, uh, among other things, prison and crack cocaine and so on. <laughs> uh, clearly I'm living on the edge here in Los Angeles, riding around town on my bicycle under the influence of low-grade pharmaceutical amphetamines. Please remember that Walt Whitman's mother was illiterate and that Dostoevsky wrote The Gambler in 16 Days. That is it for now. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to Mitchell Jackson. Go get the residue years. I'll be back in a few days with another conversation. Uh, You know the drill. Another author, uh, another conversation with some such writerly person. In the meantime, I am going to continue with my life in a relatively ordinary manner. And uh, I believe that my uh, amphetamine intake is going to be limited to caffeine, which I am going to freebase. (laughs) 